Welcome, everyone, to episode 94 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and this is the third annual Halloween special. Everything in today's episode takes place on or around Halloween, so let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. In this first story, we're going to hear about the Candyman, Ronald Clark O'Brien. Ronald O'Brien, nicknamed the Candyman and the man who killed Halloween, was convicted of killing his eight-year-old son Timothy on Halloween 1974 with a potassium cyanide-laced pixie stick that he claimed was collected during a trick-or-treat outing. O'Brien poisoned his son in order to claim life insurance money to ease his own financial troubles, as he was $100,000 in debt. He also distributed poison candy to his daughter and three other children in an attempt to try to cover up his crime. However, thankfully, neither his daughter nor the other children ate the poison candy. He was convicted of capital murder in June of 1975 and sentenced to death and he was executed by lethal injection in March 1984. O'Brien lived with his wife, Diane, in Deer Park, Texas, with their son, Timothy, and daughter, Elizabeth. O'Brien worked as an optrician at the Texas State Optical in Sharpstown in Houston. He was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church, where he sang in the choir and ran a local bus program. On October 31, 1974, he took his two children trick-or-treating in a Pasadena, Texas neighborhood. O'Brien's neighbor and his two children accompanied them. After visiting a home where the occupant failed to answer the door, the children grew impatient and ran ahead to the next home while O'Brien stayed behind. He eventually caught up with the group and produced five 21-inch pixie sticks, which he would later claim 
he was given from the occupant of the house that had not answered the door. At the end of the evening, he gave each of his neighbors two children a pixie stick and one each to Timothy and Elizabeth. Upon returning home, O'Brien gave the fifth pixie stick to a ten-year-old boy whom he rec recognized from his church. Before bed, Timothy asked to eat some of the candy that he collected, and according to Ronald, he chose the pixie stick. Timothy had trouble getting the powdered candy out of the straw, so O'Brien helped him loosen the powder. After tasting the candy, Timothy complained that it tasted bitter. He then gave his son Kool-Aid to wash away the taste. Timothy immediately began to complain that his stomach hurt and he ran to the bathroom where he began vomiting and convulsing. O'Brien would later claim that he held Timothy while he was vomiting and the child went limp in his arms. Timothy O'Brien died en route to the hospital less than an hour after consuming the candy. Timothy's death from the poisoned Halloween candy raised fear in the community. Numerous parents in Deer Park and the surrounding area turned in candy their children got from trick-or-treating to the police, fearing that it was also laced with poison. The police did not initially suspect O'Brien of any wrongdoing until Timothy's autopsy revealed that the pixie stick he had consumed was laced with a fatal dose of potassium cyanide. Four of the five pixie sticks O'Brien claimed to have received were recovered by the authorities from the other children, none of whom who had consumed the candy. The parents of the fifth child became hysterical when they could not locate the candy after being notified by the police. The parents rushed upstairs to find their son asleep, holding the unconsumed candy. The boy had been unable to open the staples that sealed the wrapper shut. All five of the pixie sticks had been opened, with the top two inches refilled with cyanide powder and resealed with a staple. According to a pathologist who tested the pixie sticks, the candy consumed by Timothy contained enough cyanide to kill two adults, while the other four candies contained enough to kill three to four adults. O'Brien initially told police that he could not remember which house that he got from the pixie sticks from. The police became suspicious because O'Brien and his neighbor had only taken their children to homes on two streets because it had been raining. Their suspicions increased after learning that none of the homes they visited had given out pixie sticks. After walking the neighborhood with the police three times, O'Brien led them to the home where no one had answered the door. He claimed that he went back there before catching up with the group. He said that the owner of the home did not turn the lights on, but did crack the door open and hand him five pixie sticks. He claimed to have only seen the man's arm, which he described as hairy. The home was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin. Melvin was an air traffic controller at William P. Hobby Airport and did not get home from work until 11 p.m. on Halloween night. The police ruled Melvin out as a suspect when over 200 people confirmed that he had been at work. As their investigation progressed, the police learned that Ronald O'Brien was over $100,000 in debt and he had a history of being unable to hold a job. In the 10 years preceding the crime, O'Brien had held 21 jobs. At the time of his arrest, 
He was suspected of theft at his job at Texas State Optical and was close to being fired. His car was about to be repossessed and he had defaulted on several bank loans and the family home had been foreclosed on. Police discovered that O'Brien had taken out life insurance policies on his children in the months preceding Timothy's death. In January 1974, he had taken out $10,000 life insurance policies on both of his children. One month before Timothy's death, O'Brien took out an additional $20,000 policy on both, despite the objections of his life insurance agency. In the days preceding Timothy's death, O'Brien had taken out yet another $20,000 policy on each child. The various policies totaled approximately $60,000. O'Brien's wife maintained that she did not know about the insurance policies on her children's lives. The police also learned that on the morning after Timothy's death, O'Brien had called his insurance company to inquire about collecting the policy that he had taken out on his son. After learning that O'Brien had visited a chemical supply store in Houston to buy cyanide shortly before Halloween, he left without purchasing anything after learning the smallest amount available to purchase was five pounds. Police began to suspect that Ronald O'Brien had laced the candies with poison in an effort to kill his children to collect on their life insurance policy. They believed that he gave the other children poison candy in an effort to cover up his crime. Police repeatedly questioned O'Brien, but he maintained his innocence. Although the police never discovered when or where he bought the poison, he was arrested for Timothy's murder on November 5, 1974. He was indicted on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. O'Brien entered a plea of not guilty to all five counts. His trial began in Houston on May 5, 1975. During the trial, a chemist who was acquainted with O'Brien testified that in the summer of 1973, O'Brien contacted him asking about cyanide and how much would be fatal. A chemical supply salesman also testified that he had asked him how to purchase cyanide. Friends and co-workers testified that in the months before Timothy's death, O'Brien showed an unusual interest in cyanide and spoke about how much it would take to kill a person. O'Brien's sister-in-law and brother-in-law testified that on the day of Timothy's funeral, he spoke of using the money from Timothy's insurance policy to take a long vacation and buy other items. As well, his wife rejected the claim that Timothy chose the pixie sticks, stating that O'Brien had, in fact, forced him to choose the pixie sticks. O'Brien continued to maintain his innocence. His defense mainly drew upon the decades-old urban legend concerning a, quote, mad poisoner who hands out candy, Halloween candy laced with poison or needles, or candy apples with razor blades inserted. These stories have persisted despite the fact that there are no documented instances of strangers poisoning Halloween candy. The case and subsequent trial garnered national attention and the press dubbed him the Candyman. On June 3, 1975, 
A jury took 46 minutes to find O'Brien guilty of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. The jury took 71 minutes to sentence him to death by electrocution. Shortly after he was convicted, his wife filed for divorce. She later remarried and her new husband adopted her daughter Elizabeth. At the time, men sentenced to death under Texas law were confined to Elias One Unit near Huntsville, Texas. According to Reverend Carol Pickett, a former chaplain who worked for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, O'Brien was shunned and despised by his fellow death row inmates for killing his child and was absolutely friendless. The inmates reportedly petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on O'Brien's execution date to express their hatred of him. O'Brien's first execution date was set for August 8, 1980. His attorney successfully petitioned for a stay of execution. A second date was scheduled for May 25, 1982. That date was also postponed. Judge Michael McSpadden scheduled a third execution date for October 31, 1982, the eighth anniversary of the crime and he offered to personally drive O'Brien to the death chamber. It was to have been the first time Texas executed an inmate by lethal injection. The Supreme Court delayed the date yet again to give O'Brien a chance to pursue an appeal to seek a new trial. A fourth date was scheduled for March 31, 1984. O'Brien's lawyer sought a fourth stay on the basis that lethal injection was cruel and unusual punishment. On March 28th, a federal judge rejected the request, and then on March 31st, 1984, shortly after midnight, O'Brien was executed by lethal injection at the Huntsville unit. His last meal consisted of a T-bone steak, french fries and ketchup, whole kernel corn, sweet peas, lettuce and tomato salad with egg and french dressing, iced tea, sweetener, crackers, Boston cream pie, and rolls. O'Brien's last words were, What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I will forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also, to anyone I have offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way. And I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us respectively as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts I love you one and all. God bless you, and may God's best blessings be always yours. Ronald C. O'Brien P.S. During my time here, I have been treated well by all TDC personnel. During the execution, a crowd of 300 demonstrators gathered outside the prison, cheered while some yelled, Trick or Treat. Others showered anti-death penalty demonstrators with candy. Ronald O'Brien was buried in the Forest Park East Cemetery in Webster, Texas. 
Timothy is buried in Forest Park Lawndale Cemetery in Houston. I'll never understand a parent murdering their own child. And doing it to collect insurance money is one of the absolute lowest things that you can do. And he got exactly what he deserved. People are the real monsters in the world. Now our next story is a creepy one that I found and it's called The Truculent Truck. We've never figured this out. And now, the three living witnesses have to be good and drunk to discuss this whole thing. I was seven, my brother ten, my mom in her early forties, and my grandmother was in her sixties. So we were all cognate. No one was too young or too senile to recall this mess. Yet, still no answers. My grandma lived in an isolated country road in North Carolina that was named after her family since they were the only crazy people who lived on the land. And I do mean crazy. We have stories about relatives that start with, do you remember that time Uncle Bob was in the ditch with a shotgun? Which time? Her house had been empty for several weeks while she had been visiting us in Florida, but we were all back spending the weekend with her before trekking back to the Sunshine State. The house is in the for real country, literally over train tracks, past the salvage yard, and her nearest neighbor wasn't within screaming distance. It was early in the morning on Halloween, like just before daybreak. We're awake because these are farm freaks who wake up at the crack of dawn out of sheer habit. We were eating cereal when we hear someone pull up outside. Curious, we all run to the big picture window that looks out into the front yard. There's a strange truck there. No one seems to be behind the wheel, though the engine is idling. The truck was old, for one thing. It's old-timey, like maybe from the 30s. You could picture the Clampett family heading to California in this thing. It's rusted, but it was probably once painted blue. We stare at the thing, bewildered. Mom asks Grandma if she knows who that is. Nope, not a clue, says Grandma. She runs to get the phone to call her cousin and ask him to come up. She thinks maybe it's a hired hand and he's just at the wrong farm. Just as she asks him to come on down, the phone goes dead. Well, that's unsettling. All at once, there is a loud, insistent banging on the front door. We all scream. My grandma, who is terrifyingly resourceful, huddles us all into the living room, away from a window where anyone can see us. Then, while mom, me, and my brother tremble there on the couch, she grabs a serrated bread knife from the kitchen and cautiously approaches the front door. She peeks out of a side window, very stealthily. She turns back to us and looks confused. She shakes her head like no one is there. We all kind of breathe easier. Then every door in the house starts banging, and witlessly, I can still hear it, rhythmic and terrifying, like all the doors are about to splinter and crack. There were two doors in the basement beneath us, so the sound is also a reverberation at our feet. 
the three ground floor doors are shaking. We can see them trembling and jerking on their hinges from our vantage point on the couch. Finally, my mom runs to the window. Either from a psychotic break with reality or terror, I have no clue. And she cries, Oh, thank Christ, your cousin is here. We run to her and peek out of the picture window. There was no one that we can see in the yard, but we can't see all the doors from our viewpoint. Our cousin walks by the truck with a shotgun in his hand. Our cousin, it should be noted, had pretty much every gun ever made. He looks puzzled, looking at the rear of the truck. Then he glances in the cab window and he stops. He goes pale, runs a hand down his face, and then he runs towards the house, towards us. My grandmother flings open the kitchen door as she sees him coming. He shouts, Everyone get behind the couch! Get down! He runs past us as we bolt for the couch. Then the banging starts again. All the doors, and now we can hear the windows rattle. It's like a tornado or the end of the world. We are too scared to even scream. Our cousin flings open the front door and fires a huge shotgun once. Bang! Deafening. As he does, the truck roars into life, and it sounds like a train. We scramble up. The banging stops, mercifully. Our cousin is advancing onto the lawn, gun leveled at the truck. We run behind him, wanting to be out of that shaking, quivering house and near the dude with the gun. The truck peels out, backwards, cutting across the yard and racing into a breakneck speed. Tires squeal, rubber is burned. Our cousin fires again, and we all cower behind him. He blows out the back window with the sound of a thousand plates smashing into linoleum, but the truck never even hiccups. It just roars down the road. No tags, not even a vanity plate on the back. There was no one behind the wheel of that thing. We all had a clear view. Everyone agreed. Not a driver in the cab. Not anything else we could see. Anyhow, the police were called. Our cousin had to go home to his house to call. This was pre-cell phone era. The phone line had been cut. There was not a single boot print in the entire yard except for our cousin's, from where he'd run into and out of the house. Our cousin reported that there had been no plate, but when he looked into the cab, it looked like something from a horror movie. He said there were all kinds of weird restraints, handcuffs, C-clamps, nylon straps, and he said the floorboards looked covered in what smelled like blood to him. Our cousin was famous for his keen sense of smell, and the window was down, so it's possible. Our cousin said that he thought he saw a blur of something out of the picture window and ran to fire the first shot, but he missed, because once he stood there, nothing or no one was on the lawn or in the truck. Then it shot backwards out of the yard and out of our lives, leaving no answers, just a deep sense of uneasy every time we'd visit. Grandma and our cousin have passed. Deeply religious people, they stuck by their unchanging versions of the story until they died. My brother, mother, and I have never been able to figure it out. Neither did the cops. I think it should be noted, we don't know how all the windows and doors were banging and we don't know why we never saw a soul anywhere or how they could get around the sides of the house without leaving a trace in the damp earth.
To close out the third annual Halloween special, I have one more murder on Halloween to talk about. The murder of Lisa Ann French. This next story is graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Lisa Ann French was a nine-year-old girl from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, who was sexually assaulted and murdered by her neighbor, Gerald Miles Turner Jr., later nicknamed the Halloween Killer, on Halloween night 1973, while she was trick-or-treating alone. French was out trick-or-treating alone near her home on her way to a neighborhood Halloween party. Turner had lured her into his home before sexually assaulting and killing her, then concealing her corpse in a garbage bag and later discarding her body in a farm field in the town of Teichita, Wisconsin. Turner confessed to the murder nine months later and was originally sentenced to 38 years and six months for his crimes, but he was mandatorily released on parole in 1992 in 1998, but sent back to prison in 2003 for 15 years and 6 months for violating his parole. The murder sent shockwaves through the local community of Fond du Lac and the state of Wisconsin, causing more stringent daylight trick-or-treating hours in Wisconsin communities and inspiring the creation of Wisconsin Chapter 980, enacted in 1994 and nicknamed Turner's Law, which allows criminals who have been released from their prison sentences to be detained in mental health facilities if they are deemed sexually violent persons and dangerous to the public. Lisa Ann French was born on June 2, 1964 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin to parents Alan French and Marianne Grierg. She lived in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin with her mother, stepfather, Bruce Dupuy, and newborn half-brother, a half block away from where Turner lived. French was a fourth grader at Chugin Elementary School and a member of the Girl Scouts. At the time of her death, Turner lived with his girlfriend, Arlene Penn, and their infant child. French and Turner knew each other before the incident. She often spent time with Turner and Penn's infant and had regular conversations with him. Turner had previously shared a rented side of a duplex with French's family. Prior to the murder, Turner had not been convicted for any major sex offenses. He had previously sexually molested a 15-year-old babysitter, but was never accused before the murder of French. French left her home at around 5.45 p.m., dressed as a hobo, wearing a black felt hat, a green parka, jeans with blue masking tape, and dotted freckles on her cheeks. French originally intended to be accompanied by a friend, Ann Parker, on her way to an outdoor Halloween party at Pumpkin Place on East Bank Street. Parker, however, had been grounded, so she had to stay home leaving French to trick-or-treat by herself. It was reported that French stopped for candy at a classmate's house in the house of one of her teachers, Karen Buchnecht, before she made her way to Turner's residence. 
According to Turner's confession, French rang his doorbell, said, Trick or treat, and walked through his open doorway with her candy bag open as Turner came to the door. Turner and French began to talk about candy, and at some point, Turner lured her into his bedroom, where he sexually assaulted and murdered her. Turner said that after the assault, French wasn't breathing. He attempted to revive her, but was interrupted when Arlene arrived home. Penn, who had been at the party French was supposed to attend, said that she arrived at her home around 7 p.m. Turner was wearing a bathrobe and claimed multiple times that he was sick. Penn said that Turner made several trips to the bedroom to lie down. In Turner's confession, he said that French's body was, at the time, in the adjacent bathroom. After Arlene left the residence at around 8 p.m. to visit her mother, Turner stuffed French's body and clothes into, a separate, into separate bags and drove her body to Teichita, Wisconsin, where he discarded her corpse in a farm field off Macabre Road. In an effort to avoid leaving evidence of fingerprints on her body or on the crime scene, Turner wore socks on his hands when moving the body. He also wiped down French's shoes in the zipper of her parka. French's mother, Marianne Grierg, started to grow worried about her daughter's whereabouts when she did not return home for her 7 p.m. curfew. By 10 p.m., a search party had formed and begun looking for the young girl. After a four-day countywide extensive search for the missing girl, which included over 5,000 volunteers, 700 block parents, auxiliary police officers, the United States National Guard, and some of her fellow Girl Scouts. A farmer named Gerald Braun was returning home on his tractor in Teichita on November 3, 1973, at 11.30 a.m., when he discovered two brown plastic bags behind a barbed wire fence near a forest on McCabe Road one containing French's naked corpse, the other containing the clothing from her Halloween costume. An autopsy performed on French's body had revealed that French had died from asphyxiation through a pathologist had also stated that she had died from circulatory shock from the sexual trauma that she endured. French's funeral was held on November 6, 1973 at Emmanuel Trinity Lutheran Church in Fond du Lac. On November 8, 1973, the Chamber of Commerce had posted a $10,000 reward for the capture of Lisa Ann French's killer. Turner was made a suspect of the murder early in the investigation by Fond du Lac law enforcement, but it took nine months of questioning and testing until he confessed nine months later on August 8, 1974 to the rape and murder of the young girl. During the nine months of scrutiny from police, he was brought in by law enforcement to perform a polygraph exam. The results of the exam came back inconclusive and Turner denied to perform a second exam. The police had also collected body hair and bedspread fiber samples from Turner, which Turner were positively matched to samples on French's body and her clothing. Turner, in his 1974 confession, had stated that when he saw French in his doorway, 
he was, quote, highly sexually motivated. He said he then proceeded to lead her into his bedroom, where he undressed her and then performed anal intercourse on her. Turner then said that he noticed that French had stopped breathing after the assault, and he put his head over her chest and noticed that her heart was still beating, and he attempted to revive her by placing his hands over her chest and then listening to her chest again until he said Penn had driven up to the house. Gerald Turner was subsequently taken into police custody on August 9, 1974, and was convicted on February 4, 1975, by a jury on the charges of second-degree murder, enticing a child for immoral purposes and acts of a sexual perversion, and was sentenced to 38 years and six months in prison. Turner was first paroled on October 13, 1992 for, quote, good behavior, after only serving 17 years and eight months of his sentence in Wupun Correctional Institution. His 1992 parole sparked multiple community protests and public outrage among French's relatives and residents of Milwaukee, which was where he was living at in a halfway house during his first parole. This prompted lawmakers to create the Sexual Predator Law Wisconsin Chapter 980 nicknamed Turner's Law, which was ratified on May 26, 1994 by Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson. This law allows criminals who have been paroled or released from their prison sentences to be detained in mental institutions if they are deemed to have a substantial probability of committing another crime. Turner was sent back to prison on November 23, 1993, after a Department of Corrections appeal ruled that they had miscalculated his mandatory parole release from his good behavior. On January 29, 1998, after a four-day trial, a jury on Turner's parole hearing ruled that Turner was not a violent sexual predator, meaning that he could not be held at a treatment center under Turner's law and could begin his mandatory second parole that year. In July of 98, a judge ruled against an unsuccessful attempt to revoke his parole after a June incident in which Turner had shouted and waved a butcher knife at his caseworker while at his halfway house, although a psychiatrist ruled him to still be a dangerous individual. Turner had filed a complaint on the waste management of Madison for the company refusing to hire him due to his criminal record. Turner and the company reached an undisclosed settlement where they were required to hire him due to a former Wisconsin law not allowing companies to consider criminal convictions when hiring former felons unless the crime is substantially related to the applying job, which the waste management company argued that he could not be hired since they had 15 tours with children during the previous school year, and that he would have access to dangerous materials and chemicals. Following Turner's complaint against the Waste Company, the Wisconsin State Assembly passed a bill on October 28, 1999, in a vote of 63 to 33, which repealed the original law that prohibited job discrimination based on a felon's criminal record. 
meaning that employers could then rightfully refuse to hire convicted felons on the basis of their criminal record without further complaints. Turner was returned to prison for 15 additional years after violating his parole in 2003 when an abundance of pornographic content was discovered in his possession. Turner, in an undated letter he wrote to French after her death, depicted the events that took place during their encounter. I doubt that I could ever fully realize the terror you experience at my hands. I can still see you standing in the doorway with that felt hat beaming at having recognized me. Then I see the delight in your eyes turn to fear as I close the door behind you. The rest of my life I will have to live with what I did to you. On that night I became a monster. I do swear to you on the forfeiture of my life I will never harm another child. Turner had at one time suggested that due to him committing the crimes on Halloween, he had received more than significance for the crime in his case once quoting, if it had happened on some other day, like Valentine's Day, nobody would have gave a damn. After being returned to prison to serve 15 and a half years for violating his parole in 2003, Turner was scheduled to be mandatorily released fully from his extended prison sentence at Racine Correctional Institution without any parole restrictions on February 1, 2018. Turner's impending release caused Lisa Ann French's mother to create an online petition in an effort to keep him incarcerated in a mental treatment facility. As of 2021, the petition has received over 34,000 signatures with over 9,000 signatures from Wisconsin residents. The Wisconsin Department of Justice filed a legal petition on January 26, 2018, prior to his mandatory prison release, to make the case that Turner should be detained under Wisconsin Chapter 980. Turner was then transported to a facility in Juneau County temporarily while awaiting a scheduled hearing on April 6, 2018 to determine if he was a violent sex offender and could be held at a treatment facility permanently. The scheduled April 6 hearing was postponed following Circuit Court Judge Robert Wirtz ordering a transfer of the proceedings from its original setting of Fond du Lac County to Dane County, Wisconsin. This move was a result of Turner's defense attorney persuading Wirtz to move the hearing by arguing that Turner had lived in a Madison halfway home during his second parole before he was sent back to prison. Wisconsin's Department of Justice then proceeded to appeal the circuit judge's decision to move the case to Dane County as the Department of Justice argued that the hearing should take place where the crime occurred. As the intervals between each hearing lengthened, a spokesperson for the Department of Justice stated that there was no timeline for when a final decision on Turner's status was to be made, as Turner had currently remained at Sand Ridge Secure Treatment Center in Mauston, Wisconsin. In 2019, a Wisconsin appellate court irrevocably ruled that Turner was to be tried again in Fond du Lac County, overriding the circuit court judge's decision in ruling that he had to be tried in Fond du Lac County. The proceedings, however, were postponed again 
partly because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was most recently reported that Turner was set to have his status tried again in court on October 29, 2020, two days before the 47th anniversary of the murder of French. On February 23, 2022, Judge Paul Cinzi ultimately denied Turner's release, ruling to condemn Turner to residency at a high-security mental health facility. Well, that is going to do it for this year's Halloween special. I do hope that everyone enjoyed the stories, and if you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find the show. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. I'm still trying to get to 500 subscribers to get that exclusive bonus episode, so if you haven't already, please subscribe. If you do enjoy the show, please consider subscribing on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening. Have a happy and safe Halloween, and make sure to keep those doors and windows locked. And stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>